All right, we're in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. It says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man, sees him. And he, and he came up to Jesus at once, and he said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, before we unpack these verses for tonight, I want to remind us where we left off last week. Jesus has been praying in the garden, and he's been asking the Father that there's, if there's any other way that mankind's sin can be covered and forgiven, he's for it. You remember where we left off last week, how he prayed three times, Father, if there's any other way that you can reconcile man and you can cover man's sin, I'm for it. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. There's a couple of things I want to pull out real quickly from where we left off last week that I didn't have time to. The first thing is this. Jesus is praying and asking the Father if there's any other way. And then, of course, the answer is no, because Jesus, who's fully submitted to the Father, got up and he went to the cross. If the answer was no, he would have gone in a different direction. So if the answer was yes, there's another way he would have gone in a different direction. But the answer was no. And we need to get this in our heads and in our hearts, because we're living in a day in which it's going to get even stronger the move of the thought of there's lots of ways to get to God. That's always been there, but it's going to get stronger. The Bible actually says in the last days there's going to be doctrines which are taught by demons, and there's going to be people that are looking for people that tickle their ears, and they're going to find preachers and teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And as you know, there are lots of people around the globe that will say, hey, you Christians, you believe in Jesus as your way to God, that's fine. But there's many ways to God. But here we see clearly that Jesus himself who's not only man, but also God, said, Father, if there's any other way, and the answer was, there's no other way. Go to Acts chapter 4. Go to Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 12. Acts 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's preaching and he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, we either believe the Bible to be true or we don't. Remember last week, what we heard over and over? God's word is true. God's word is sure. And what God has said will happen will happen no matter how strongly you feel differently. We need to let this sink in and this truth be true. We're not going to be jerks about it, but we're going to be bold and we're going to stand true to the truth that Jesus himself in John 14, 6 said this. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. I have been shocked in my role as pastor for many years in churches in New Orleans and Chicago and Florida. And then for the last 15 years, traveling the country and speaking to churches and speaking to Christians. I've been surprised at how many people, I'm not going to say Christians, I'm just going to say how many people who go to church on a regular basis who will say there might be other ways. Folks, Jesus himself prayed specifically, is there another way? And the father said, no, there's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Let me give you one more passage. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. We're living in a day when you're going to start hearing a lot more about getting everybody together and unifying and unity. And one of the big moves is going to be to try to unify all the different world religions. That movement has been there. It's going to get stronger in the days that are coming. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are actually religious denominations. Some of them claim to be Christian who are actually working right now to gather Jews and Muslims and Christians all together because their attitude is some of the, some of the biggest reasons for the wars on the, on the earth are because of Christianity and Judaism and Muslims. But if they would all understand that they all trace their heritage back to Abraham and they all have the same father, let's just unite in that way. And there are quote unquote Christian organizations that are actually helping move toward this. Folks, there's going to be a one world religion, the Bible says very clearly in the last days as we head into the last of the last days, which we're heading to and during the trip tribulation period and so on. And I just want to say to you in these days, stand firm in the truth of the word. There's only one way to be right, made right with God. Look at Hebrews 9 and look at verses 11 through 22. And by the way, that only way is through Jesus and faith alone in him. In Hebrews 9 verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. 
saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Listen closely. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let that last verse sink in, folks. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The only way you can be made right with God is through faith alone in Jesus' sinless life, his death on your behalf, his resurrection from the dead. And that is the only way, even though people want there to be many ways. But there's something else that we can learn from what Jesus was doing as he prayed in the garden and asking the Father if there be any way. The Bible says that he prayed in anguish and he prayed three times. I want you to understand. Well, let me ask you this question first. Did Jesus know the answer before he prayed those three prayers? Of course he did. If you go back to the scriptures, you've already seen, he's already been telling his disciples he's going to die. That's why I came. That's why in John chapter 12, he talks about the fact that for this reason I came to die. And so he knew the answer. But his praying, Lord, if there's any other way, even though he already knew the answer, is helpful for us. Because it shows us his humanity. He struggled with this. Yes, he was God, but he was still 100% man. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 39 through 46. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And he came out and he went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Now, some of you, if any of you have a medical background, you'll know that what's written here is an actual medical situation or condition that will happen. If someone is in agony and distress, there comes a point where they get to such a level of distress that their sweat actually turns to blood dropping through the pores of their forehead. It's a high, high, high level of distress. Very, very few humans have ever went through it, but it is a real medical situation, a medical condition. You can look it up. And Jesus was in such agony he wrestled with not wanting to go through with this because of his humanity. Now, I'm not sure that he was not wanting to go through the beating and the crucifixion as much because, listen really carefully, Jesus himself had already taught his disciples and taught us, if someone slaps you on the cheek, what were you to do? Give him the other cheek. So it wasn't like he was telling us, hey, don't be afraid of physical torture. And then I don't want to be physically tortured. But he also knew that beyond the physical suffering that he was going to go through, and somehow, in some way, he was going to be separated from the Father. Now, I'm just going to leave it with you at this. I don't know how God can separate himself from God, but in some way, the Father turned his back on the Son during that time on the cross. And the agony of that was such that he, he wrestled with it, he struggled with it. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. As you're turning to Hebrews chapter 2, you probably have heard this verse quoted a few times, that Jesus was tempted yet without sin. But I left a part of that verse off. Does anybody know what the rest of that verse says? He was tempted in what? In every way, yet without sin. 
I don't want you to think for a second that Jesus doesn't understand the struggle that you're going through as a human in this life. Because all of us are tempted in many ways. But I got to be honest with you, there are some things that don't tempt me. There's some things that may tempt you that don't tempt me. There are things that tempt me that don't tempt you. But Jesus experienced the temptation in every form, every way. Well, listen to Hebrews 2. Look at verses 9 through 18. But we see him, this him is Jesus, as you're about to see, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it's, surely it's not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, listen closely, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have a tendency at times when we're going through trials and we're going through temptations to think that God doesn't know or he wouldn't understand. Folks, he does. I'm going to quote to you a verse that we all know pretty well, but I want you to listen closely to it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. In other words, what you're going through, you're not the only one being tempted by it. And listen, and God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape. Didn't that sound to you like God's pretty active in the temptation? We always think that God leaves us alone in the temptation, that Satan, we're just left alone to Satan. No, Satan, once you become a child of God, Satan can't do anything to you unless he has permission from the Father. But then the Father will only let him do so much to a certain level. And he won't allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And don't think for a second that what you're going through, others don't understand. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way for you to escape. Listen closely. When God allows us to go through trials and tests, the Bible says we're to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Because God has a purpose of growth for that. They're going to produce character and hope and so on and patience and perseverance. Actually, what God wants us to do when the trial and the temptation comes is to run to him. He actually has designed this kind of a life so that we would be intimate with him. And the good news is we don't have to tell him what we're going through like he doesn't know. As you're about to see in our study for tonight, as we finally get to the verses that we started and read. He has experienced everything you've experienced. And some of you probably experienced something we're about to talk about in just a little bit. And if you've experienced what we're about to talk about, he does know and he wants to help. Back in Matthew 26, you remember in verse 41, he says, the spirit is what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, God is living within you right now. If you're his child, wanting 
to help, wanting to give you victory, wanting to empower you, wanting to strengthen you. You see, did you notice how Jesus and Luke, he was praying and an angel came and ministered to him? You have God himself living within you. And when you pray, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that his Holy Spirit helps us while we pray. He's praying for us in line with God's purposes of why we're going through what we're going through. You're not on your own. And he's not mad at you if you struggle. He's not mad at you if you're tempted. He's not even mad at you if you fall to the temptation as we looked at last week. But he wants you to learn how to let him give you the victory. You know why? Because he lived in a human body just like yours and mine, was tempted in every way, yet he never sinned. In other words, he knows how to live as a human and have victory over temptation. And he can give you that same excuse me, victory on a daily basis as you learn to rely on him. Now let's get back to our passage for tonight. That was just the intro. Look again at verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came. And what does it say next? One of the twelve. That's very important. Je Jesus is being betrayed by Judas. And Judas is helping the religious leaders capture him in the dark. Was an even worse betrayal. Because Judas was one of the twelve. We've all been hurt by somebody a time or two. There's been people that have offended us and hurt us. But the people that can hurt us the most are the people that are the closest to us. That's why husbands and wives have some of their fights that they do that are more intense than others because of the intimacy of that relationship. And unfortunately, typically when we're hurt deeply, especially by someone close to us, our natural reaction when we're hurt is to lash back. When I remember as a kid growing up in New England, they had these little snakes called garter snakes. They're harmless. But if you cornered a garter snake, it would actually bite you. It would just draw a little blood. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have any poison or anything. But even a garter snake, if you go after it, it'll come back at you. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed and rejected. It's funny, I heard a comedian years ago say the reason why God has given us teenagers is he wants us to give us a taste of what we do to him. He says, I'm going to have you make someone in your own image and he's going to act like you don't exist. Go to Psalm. 41. Psalm 41, look at verse 9. This prophecy about Judas, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Look at that, my close friend. Go over to chapter 45 of Psalms. We're going to read verses 12 through 14 and then 20 and 21. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14 and then 20 and 21. 55. Psalm 55, verses 12 and through 14. David, now we don't know who specifically David is talking about here. It, some people think it might be Absalom or Ahithophel. But David is writing now and he says, For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Jump down to verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. Oh, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. I want to pull something out to you tonight that I have never seen in my 30 to 40 years of preaching and teaching God's word. 
I've never seen this until I was doing my prep for tonight's study. Let's go read again what Judas comes and he does. For years I've read that when Judas kissed Jesus, he just gave him a, that was it, a one kiss. Have we all ever pictured one kiss? The guy I kissed, that's the one. As you're about to see, it was much more than that. Look closely again. Verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once, and he said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, we're just going to stop here. The Greek actually brings something out here when it says he kissed him that I'd never seen before. This translation of he kissed him actually is not one kiss, but it's a bunch of kisses. First of all, in that culture, there were lots of different ways you would kiss somebody. Kiss them on the head, kiss them on the hand, or kiss them on the cheek. And that was the most intimate way that a man would kiss another man was a kiss on the cheek. But this wasn't a on the cheek. It was actually a perpetual I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It was a phony put on show. He comes up in front of all these people. Who's leading the crowd, by the way? Judas, he's, he's the big dog now. He's got 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. He's feeling pretty important because remember, he was following Jesus because he wanted to enter into that kingdom. He thought Jesus was going to set up. But the more he spent time with Jesus over those three years, he's starting to realize this guy's not trying to become a political figure. He's not trying to overthrow Rome. He's actually more interested in another kingdom. And Judas started to lose interest. And he turned away because he wanted power and wealth. Actually, the Bible says he was in charge of the money and he was stealing from the treasury. So he goes and he makes a deal with the religious leaders and he says, I know where he's going to be, where you don't have to do it in front of a crowd and you don't have to worry what other people will think. And he sets it all up and he's leading him and he comes up in front of all these people and he says, greetings, rabbi. And then I'm going to show you from the Bible, though. Don't just take my word for it. Go to Luke chapter seven. Where it says he kissed him, you're going to see the same Greek word being used in these places that I'm about to show you. Go to Luke seven. We're going to read just one verse, verse 38, and then we're going to jump down to verse 44 and 45. Luke 7, verse 38. And it says, And standing behind him, behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she, this woman, began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. There's that same word again, kissed his feet. Now jump down to verse 44. Look what Jesus said. Then Jesus, turning to the woman, said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now we see what type of a kiss was this woman kissing Jesus? It wasn't a one kiss. It was a perpetual, I love you, I love you kind of a kiss. And Judas comes up with a phony, perpetual Kiss, probably on both sides of the cheek, over and over for a little bit of, bit of time. Go to Luke 15. You're in Luke 7. Go to Luke 15. Look at verse 20. In the story of the prodigal son, we see the son come back to the father. And look at verse 20 in Luke 15. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. By the way, in all the times you've read that, have you ever read it that the father just gave him one kiss? No. It was an embrace and a bunch of kisses. We'll go to one more. Go to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verses 36 through 38, Paul is in Miletus, and he's asked the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him. 
And he's given them final instructions because he doesn't believe he'll ever see them again. And he's told them such. And at the end of his conversation with them in Ephesians, sorry, Acts chapter 20, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. There it is again. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Judas came up in front of all these people and he mocked Jesus. He's mocking him. Greetings, Rabbi. That was a term of honor, respect. And then he goes, mm, 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 I love you so much. By the way, who is controlling Judas at this point? We should know from our study of Matthew. Remember, Satan's in controlling him at this point. He's gotten up from the table from the, what we know is the Lord's Supper or the Passover meal. And Jesus said, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And at that point, Satan entered him. So who's actually coming up and mocking Jesus in front of all these people? Satan is. Judas is responsible, but Satan is controlling him. By the way, you see the same thing going on with the religious leaders who are spitting on him and slapping him and saying mock, mocking him, saying, tell us who hit you, Christ, you are the Christ. At this time, Judas comes up and he mocks him. Now, stop for a second. Who is Judas mocking? God. We're about to see when Peter starts swinging a sword that Jesus clearly says, I have the power and authority to take care of this right now if I needed to. But he doesn't. Go back to your passage in Matthew 26. What, is, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to Judas when he's mocking him openly in front of all these people? He said, friend, do what you came to do. Go back to Matthew chapter 20 real quick. You'll notice that actually when people were attacking Jesus, he responded gently every time. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 10 through 13. In the parable of the workers of the vineyard. It says, now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did not, you not agree with me for a denarius? Then he goes on and he says, take what I've promised to pay you. Why do you have a problem with my generosity? He just happened to choose the guys who only worked an hour, the same amount as the guys that worked all day. And the guys that worked all day were so mad. They were angry at him. They're probably wanting to spit. They were so mad. And as they're angry at Jesus, he calmly looks at him and says, friend. By the way, I'm going somewhere tonight. And I really pray that the spirit of God will begin to open our hearts, all of us, to where we need to go. We're living in a day and right now in which the world is starting to divide. And people are wanting to set themselves up on one side or the other. And they think they're being righteous by choosing a side. Let me say something to you, folks. You need to be on the side of Christ, of course. But if you're on the side of Christ, it's going to be evidenced by how you treat the people you see on the supposed other side. If you see them as enemies and villains and you hate them and you're praying for their demise, that's not the Christian response. You're going to see in just a second why Jesus was able to respond so calmly to, G to Judas when all this was going on. But go to Matthew 22. Look at verses 11 and 12. Matthew 22, verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, 
How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Of course, he's then taken out into judgment. But even so, when this guy tried to get into the wedding banquet on his own merit, as we've already done our study of Matthew 22, the heart of Jesus is still love. Listen to me very carefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever lives in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. Does God love Christians more than he loves the people in hell? Not at all. He loves them just as much as he loves you and I. The difference is we get to experience the full extent of his love. Because of their sin, they're separated from him and they can't get the full advantage of his love. But he loves them just as deeply as he loves you and I. But Christians, unfortunately, over the years have fallen into a mindset of forgetting how much we've been forgiven. And we have looked down on those who are the evil in the world. And we think we're better and that God likes us more. He doesn't. He loves them just as much as you and I. And if you and I are going to be allowing Christ to live his life through us, you need to daily remind yourself that he loves that person on the other side of the political aisle just as much as he loves you. Do you all realize that most of your New Testament was written by a terrorist? I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Paul, at the time Saul, was a terrorist. He was out to kill the people on the other side of the, of the religious spectrum. He had permission. He was traveling around. That's, I mean, to the point that when God saves Paul and, and he calls, tells Ananias, hey, I'm sending this guy to you to get healed. Ananias says, you do know who you're sending to my house, right? Do you realize that there are some people right now that are on the other side of the political aisle in our country that you see them and you turn the TV off because you can't stand to even look at them? And that God could save them between now and when Jesus comes back? They could be a part of his family. Or you already said, I've written them off. And you assume God's already written them off. Folks, I know this is going to be hard. And we're going to go deeper than this in a second. But I'm going to ask you right now to begin to let God and the scriptures show you how we as Christians should be responding in this day in which we live. Things are going to get worse. Evil is going to increase. The Bible's very clear, folks. Second Timothy chapter three says in the last days, godlessness is going to increase. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said that the love of most is going to grow cold. People are going to betray each other. Family members are going to be going against each other. It should not be that way for those of us who are in Christ. We need to stand firm in the truth. We should never soften. We should never soften on the truth of the gospel for the sake of unity. But as you stand firm on the truth like Jesus, love them. Be gentle in response. Go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I'm going to stop for a second. I've already touched on this. I'm going to say it again. As I've looked at the scriptures, I've come to realize that most often when a person makes a righteous decision in their minds or they're righteously indignant, they're usually wrong. Remember Martha? Lord, 
Tell my sister to help me. I've already decided I'm doing the right thing. She's doing the wrong thing. And what does Jesus say? Actually, um, she's chosen what's best. You're wrong, Martha. You're worried about a whole lot of stuff, but she's chosen what's best. You got James and John when the, uh, the uh, um, Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus and his disciples go through Samaria because they knew he was going to Jerusalem. And because he was going to Jerusalem, they didn't let him pass through. They said, should we call fire down on him? They thought they were right. And what does Jesus say? Actually, you're wrong. Relax. Lord, we saw some people preaching in your name and they weren't a part of our group. And we told them to stop. Jesus says, actually, if they're not against you, they're for you. You guys are wrong. Peter, we saw last week, said what? I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll never deny you. Actually, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, dude, you're going to act like you never knew me three times. Folks, I'm going to say something to you. Our first reaction is typically wrong. Our first reaction is typically wrong. I'm going to stop. Put a finger here in Romans 12. When it says, don't be wise in your own sight, I'm going to put a finger here. Jump with me to James chapter 1. Listen to verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some of you might need to turn off social media. Some, I'm serious. I'm not saying everybody should, because each of us will be led by the Spirit. Some of you can handle it, some of you can't. Some of you are going to need to stop watching the news. It's designed to evoke a response. And typically, and it's sad to me, as I travel this country, and I'm dealing with Christians all around the country, I'm tired of Christians spending all their time talking about the election, talking about what's going on in Washington, instead about the kingdom of God. We got people standing on corners waving flags and honking horns. When, what if they put that energy into telling people about Jesus? Again, let each of you let the Spirit of God show you, but I'm just going to tell you our first reaction typically is wrong, and that's why we need to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry, because that does not produce the righteousness of God. Back to Romans 12. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, folks but overcome evil with good. Go real quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. It can't be any more clear than this. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 20 through 23. Here we see Jesus' response to Judas, and you're going to see why Jesus was quiet. 1 Peter chapter 1, sorry, I said chapter 1, I meant chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You've been called to suffer for righteousness. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now stop for a second and let's meditate on what happened with Judas and Jesus. Judas at this point now is getting what he was looking for. Notoriety, prestige. He's leading this big group with swords and clubs. And he's the one that's mocking Jesus. And Jesus calmly says to him, friend, just do what you came to do. But there's something deeper going on in Jesus' mind. Remember, the scripture just showed us. He's given us an example. He didn't respond to Judas, although he had the authority and the power to get him back. Quite good. I mean, if you read John 18, when they came to arrest him, he said, who have you come to arrest? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm he. Actually, the scripture says in the Greek, I am. And they all fell down backwards. Interestingly enough, they all get up and still go to arrest him. But at the same time, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In other words, friend, I'm not going to seek that you get what you deserve. I'm leaving that to the Father. I want to ask you a question. Does anybody know what happened to Judas just so many hours later? Not just that he hung himself. When Satan was done with him, Satan killed him. When Satan was done with him, he tormented him and killed him and threw him off to the side. And by the way, Judas was never forgiven. We'll get to that when we study him killing himself. There are those who try to say that he, when he threw the money back, no, if he was really repentant, he would have run to Jesus and said, forgive me. He was sorry for what he did. But the scripture says, Jesus himself said, he was a child of Satan from the beginning. I've lost none except the one doomed to destruction. Say, Judas is in hell, folks. But listen, Jesus knew that even though you think you're winning, even though you think you're in power, even though you're excited that all your plans are coming to fruition, I know that in just a few hours you won't even be on this planet. He calmly left the results and the vengeance to the Father. We all, like Jesus, can be patient with our enemies because we too know God will judge everyone fairly in the end. And we too once were his enemies and he gave us mercy and grace, did he not? I don't have time to take you to Romans 5 or Ephesians 2, but if Romans 5 talks about how when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 says, we too, like the rest of the world, were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, who's rich in mercy, gave us grace and mercy and he saved us. We got to keep that in mind. We need to remind ourselves because I, too, see what's going on in America. I, too, see what's happening in our, in our globe, but especially here in our country that I love. And I want to get angry about it. And God says, be careful. Be careful. Go real quick back to Matthew 26 and look closely what happens next. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Verse 51, and, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I'm going to say that again. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Listen closely. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now, I'm going to say something that I want you to hear and listen to it through the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures. 
I'm not going to make a one-size-fits-all blanket statement, but I am going to say something to you. I'm going to caution you about a strong desire to take up arms to defend. There's usually a danger in that. There are going to be times that the Spirit of God is going to say, to, well, let me just put it to you this way. To some, he may say, I want you to have a gun. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with you having a weapon and defending your house. Don't hear me say I'm not, you're not to do that. Don't hear me say that at all. But at the same time, don't you look down on a brother or sister who feels like God doesn't want them to do that. If you look for a pattern in the scripture that you just think, use that as, well, that's how we're to respond. Be careful. You've heard me say over and over, God doesn't do things the same way all the time. Paul, who was beaten in this one city, dragged outside the city, stoned and left for dead, got back up, walked right back into the city. Yet another time when they were coming to kill him, what does he do? He gets in a basket, sneaks out the window outside the wall and, and goes away. So which is it? You're just going to stand there and fight or are you going to sneak out in a basket? And one time he's in Acts 22 and he's about to be beaten and he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Pulled out his ID card. I'm a Roman citizen. You're not allowed to beat me without a trial. And they quickly backed off. But just a few chapters earlier in Acts 16, when he's in a Roman colony of Philippi, he let himself be beaten. He and Silas, who were both Roman citizens, and they knew of the law because that's what they told the magistrates after they were about to be released. You beat two Roman citizens publicly without a trial. So which is it? Do you say, I, don't, I can get out of this, or do you take it? You're going to have to learn how to let the Spirit of God lead you in each situation, but be careful. I've started to realize in the Scriptures, as you look at the nation of Israel being taken captive into Babylon, God said to some, go into Babylon. I will prosper you and take care of you in that wicked nation. But Jeremiah was told, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. So who was right? The people that stayed in Jerusalem or the people that went to Babylon? The ones who were doing what God said to do. If they stayed in Jerusalem when he told them to go to Babylon, they were in trouble. If they went into Babylon when he told them to stay in Jerusalem, they would have been in trouble. So don't hear me make a blanket statement that you're not to have a gun, you're not to defend yourself. I'm not saying that. But I'm also going to say this. If we start attacking other Christians and say, we need to take up arms, be careful. God might not be saying that. Your first response is probably wrong. Take a few days off. Pray about it. And let the Lord give you wisdom as to how he would have you respond and be real careful you don't judge your brother or your sister because they're not doing what you think God told you to do. Do you understand? All who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do I pray that our country turn toward things of God? Yes. But do you remember what Jesus said to Judas here? I mean, he said to Peter, he said, uh, well, how would the scriptures be fulfilled if you defend me? Didn't the scriptures say that in the last days, every nation on the earth is going to be against Israel? Do we think, including America, if we're around, do we think that if we just change the laws and get the right people in office, we can become a godly nation and never go there? The scripture says we're going there, folks. The scripture says we're going there. So what is God wanting you to do? And right now, there are going to be lots of people that hear this lesson that I taught last night on video. There are probably six to eight hundred people that already watched last night's all over the country. And I'm sure I'm going to get lots of comments from other Christians who feel like you shouldn't have said that. Because we should defend our country and all this stuff. Listen, I'm going to stand before God for what he has me teach. And what I'm saying to you is this. It appears to me from the scriptures that Jesus says our first response should be to prayer and to wait and let him show you how to have you respond. And chances are he might just say, look, this is where it's going. Let me show you how to live in these days until that time. By the way, let me just make that commercial. That's why I believe the next book is Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, we're going to see two things. It's full of prophecy about the last days. Full of prophecy. 
at the same time, we're going to get to watch how a Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and Abednego all learned how to be led of the Spirit under an ungodly nation's leadership. There may be some things for us in the days to come. Again, you follow the Lord and what He's leading you to do. Be careful of saying that everybody else should be feeling just as strongly as you do about it. Now, John's account of this shows us that they, we see in Matthew 26, verse 57, then they led him to Caiaphas. Actually, if you remember from our study of Matthew, Matthew cuts things short. He's a lot more concise. Go with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we see that he's the one that shows us that it's Peter that swung the sword. And he's also the one that tells us that actually they don't go straight to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas, the, Caiaphas is the high priest that year at that time. But they went first to Caiaphas' father-in-law, a man named Annas, who was the previous high priest. They went to his house first. Go to verses 19 and 20. It says, Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I, what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So actually, John's account shows us that when they arrested Jesus, they went first to Annas' house. Annas wanted to question him. And then from there, he was sent to Caiaphas' house. Now, there's something here I want you to see. Look at Matthew 5, chapter 26, verse 57. Now, as you're reading it, it's probably about 2 in the morning at this time. All right? Keep that in mind. It's probably about 2 in the morning. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Do you notice this? They don't arrest Jesus and then start sending word, hey, gather all the guys. We're going to have a quick trial. They were already waiting. They had already come together. Oh, and as we read in the verses for tonight, it looks like they're examining him and they're bringing these false witnesses and they can't find anything that'll do it until these two guys say, well, he said he would destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And of course, then he says, I adjure you by the living God. He, he makes Jesus by an oath speak. And Jesus says, you said so. Are you the Christ? He said, you said so. And then he makes this statement. He said, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven and glory, which was prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and he tears his robe. The high priest tears his robe and says, we've heard the blasphemy. What do you guys think? Like, hey, guys, let's make a vote right now. Go with me real quickly to John chapter 11. Go to John chapter 11. Look at verses 45 through 53. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53. Now, Jesus has just healed Lazarus by raising him from the dead. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, 
not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Do you see it? They've already made up their mind. This is a plan that they've had in motion for a long time. Let me say this to you. What's going on in our globe, what's going on in this country, has been planned for a while. They think they're accomplishing their plan. Oh, they may act like it's just coming about. It's been going on for a while. But listen, God's word is sure. God's word is true. And everything God said it will happen is going to happen. No matter how strongly we may try to feel differently. And we need to believe what the word God says and learn how to live in these days. Led of the spirit gently and letting him use us for his purposes and for what he wants to use us for. They're already at the house. They've already gotten together and they've already made up his mind, their mind that he's going to be put to death. They're just going through a farce of a trial. How does that make you feel? I mean, let's be honest. What they did was, if you know the scriptures, illegal. According to the Jewish law, they weren't even allowed to have a trial in the middle of the night. It's not allowed. By the way, that's why they don't give their actual verdict until the sun came up. That way they could try to find a loophole for that little law that they were breaking there. You'll see later if you do a study, the high priest was never allowed to tear his robe. But he goes and tears his robe. How does that make you feel? I mean, history repeats itself. But there's a society that says, this is illegal. This is underhanded. This is wrong. Something needs to be done about it. You hear any talk like that nowadays? What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. I want to leave you with something tonight. I'm going to let you out early tonight so you'll come back next week. Actually, for those of you that are visiting, we always start right at 7 and we will fish at 8 o'clock every night. My word is my word. Yes is yes and no is no. We never go past 8. But tonight, I want you to close with me in Psalm 37. I want to encourage you in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. It's our last passage for tonight. I promise. Unless you ask me a question. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Now stop for a second. Before we go any further, some of you are going to grab that verse 4 and say, okay, if I delight myself in the Lord, he'll give me what I want. That means I want America to turn around. I want America to be righteous. And I want America to be a godly nation. Stop, 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 stop. Jesus prayed in the garden we've already seen tonight. Father, here's what I want. What was the answer? Then, then Jesus didn't get the desire of his heart. Oh, yes, he did. Because his heart was to do what the Father wanted done. His heart was that whatever the Father said would happen. That's why Jesus forever and ever is saying that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Because if one verse is not fulfilled, God's a liar. 
And the heart of God, the heart of Jesus is far more interested in the word of God being true than man. So when you delight yourself in the Lord, your heart will be for what he wants. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Keep listening. Listen, I can't wait to encourage you with this. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. Is this starting to sound like a pattern to the scriptures tonight? For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Folks, as we close tonight, I want to encourage you with something God's been having me meditate on this past week. I've been meditating on Genesis chapter 18, where the three visitors come to Abraham as he's sitting there. The three visitors, hopefully, as you know, are Jesus and a couple of angels. And they come and they say, this time next year, you and your wife, Sarah, are going to have a child. Of course, Sarah's inside the tent. And she hears it and laughs. And they said, why'd she laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. But then the two angels go start making their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going there to bring judgment and destroy that, that city because of its wickedness. And God says, shall I hide from my friend what I'm about to do? And so Jesus, before he took on flesh, that's who it was there, that third person was Jesus before he took on flesh. He starts telling Abraham of the judgment that's going to come on the nation, or sorry, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Now Abraham knows that he's got relatives there. and He's a little concerned. And listen to what Abraham says. He says, I know you, God. Far be it for you to wipe away the righteous with the wicked. When you bring judgment, you would never just wipe away the righteous with the wicked. That's not who you are. If there are 50 people righteous there, will you spare the city? And God says, if there's 50 righteous, I won't bring judgment. What if there's 40? I won't. 30. All the way down to 10. Did you hear what God said? God said, I won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. If there are righteous, I won't bring my final judgment. The righteous have to be gone before I bring my final judgment. And we see that all through the scriptures. Even though there was less than 10, God had the angels take Lot and his family, who they were righteous in God's eyes, and they rescued them before the judgment came. Some people say, well, Jim, Noah and his family weren't taken away. They had to go through that judgment. No, no, no. Listen closely. The ark, the Bible says, is a picture of Christ, and they were taken above the judgment that happened below them. And when they came back to the earth, it was a new planet, and they were starting fresh. The Bible says without question that he has not destined us for wrath. We're not going to be judged with the rest of the world. Things are going to get bad between now and then. They're going to get darker and your flesh is going to want to take up arms and defend. And no, that's not why we're here, folks. We're to be patient. We're to trust in the Lord. We're going to wait. We, like Jesus, are going to say, even though it looks like they're winning right now, even though it looks like they're in power, they're getting all that they've planned in time. They're going to be swept away. But when he brings the final judgment on the earth, he won't judge us at the same time. We'll already have been taken away. And then we'll come back to this earth as it's reworked during the, uh, sorry, the millennial kingdom. I want to encourage you with this. Satan wants you to get all animated and upset about what's going on. Take a deep breath. God's in full control. Everything's right on schedule.
I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.